As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today is our 28th episode of A Moment of True Decolonization. We're slowly reaching the end of the series. Uh, I'm very happy that my guest is uh, Atiya Khan, who's a journalist, researcher, selector, crate digger, event organizer, and archi archivist from Johannesburg, uh, currently based in Cape Town. Uh, she currently freelances as an art journalist, documenting visual arts, theater, music, film, and other forms of culture in South Africa, and is also the co-founder of the music collective uh, Future Nostalgia, which hosts listening sessions around Cape Town, celebrating the culture of records. And as uh, DJ El Corazon, uh, her sets explore music beyond boundaries, forming connections that link the global South to the rest of the world, in, in order to evoke curiosity in the possibility of sound. Uh, hello, Atia. Hi, hi, Leopold. Hi, thanks a lot for taking that time. And I know that it's a little bit stressful for you. So I want to reiterate that everything will go greatly. I have no doubt. And with that being said, please, the floor is yours. Okay, so... Hi. Yes, um, speaking to um, deciding on what would be my moment of decolonization was a bit tough for me until um, I realized that I knew everything already, you know, I had all the information with me, but that it had seemed so obvious that um, I wasn't uh, aware that other people didn't know about this. So the topic that I've kind of chosen is looking at jazz musicians as being um, as helping the freedom struggle through South Africa and um, under the worst kind of circumstances managing to still make music um, and put out some excellent albums when they were basically banned from doing so and kind of looking at um, what kind of led to that and what um, uh, what were the circumstances around that. So I'm going to provide a very quick recap and history of that. Um, so jazz in South Africa can be traced back to around the 1920s when um, music from the US kind of started filtering in, but there was also a lot of focus on traditional sounds and a lot of um, drawing on African 
like sounds and like like their own personal um, traditions basically coming through in the music. And there was a style called Marabi that evolved in the slum yards of Johannesburg around the 1920s. Um, and it evolved in places that were basically became known as shabins or beer houses, which were run by women, where they held gatherings called Stockfells. And so there was this thriving music culture between the 20s and 30s. There were all kinds of all-night parties for black communities. And, um, you know, this is all while there was still a lot of um, repression, although there was still cultural expression was allowed. So um, you had a lot of music schools, you had a lot of uh, community gatherings, um, but as time went on, sort of, um, as we get closer to the 40s, um, there's like an influence of American jazz sort of coming through more strongly and um, people kind of fusing different forms of music to create a South African, a truly South African sound. So um, it kind of um, there was a there was an area on the outskirts of Johannesburg called Sophia Town, which became one of the stories of a very thriving cultural hub that had uh, all kinds of mixed races performing and doing all kinds of arts and. Um, and it, it it was a place where people could integrate and express themselves, and a lot of it, it's kind of spoken about as a really beautiful time in in our history. And so is District Six, which was in Cape Town. And um, the apartheid authorities obviously saw <clears throat> Sophia Town as a threat, and um, eventually it was shut down in the fifties. But all of this is kind of building up to um, the moment of the 1960s between the 1960s and 70s in South African jazz was I guess one of the hardest for musicians so one of the focuses that I wanted to talk about was this idea of what was created um, by the South African Broadcasting um, uh, uh, Commission basically the SABC and they um, created this idea of Bantu radio so, um, sorry, to backtrack a little bit, in the 1950s, the government passed the Group Areas Act. And the Group Areas Act was to remove all non-whites into less developed areas and specifically put uh, racialized and tribalized people um, even further. So you had uh, African areas, colored areas, Indian areas, and, and then the white areas, and um, all of the land that was the least developed was for non-whites. So this added a layer of separation, which made it very, very difficult for people to integrate or to even gather. And um, so uh, this was kind of coupled with things like past laws, which made it very difficult for people to travel. So musicians couldn't really move around at night or you needed a permit. You really needed to justify why you were moving around at night. And all of this kind of, I feel like, built up to this moment of Radio Bantu. Radio Bantu was created by the SABC in um, 1962 as um, a way to kind of control people and what they listen to because sound was such a dangerous thing. And um, because black 
people were seen as less developed by the apartheid authorities. Um, they uh, wanted to just enforce the idea of tribalism um, in a massive way. So, so they tried to do this through sound by creating radio stations for what they considered were the most important tribes. They did about 13 and um, they pushed a lot of choral music and um, sometimes uh, light classical, even though they didn't think um, the natives were capable of absorbing classical music, but they pushed a lot of traditional music. It was all focused on traditional music. But what, what, you, what sort of happened is that there was this existing culture of jazz already in the townships. And now all of a sudden, people were not only moved and segregated to separate areas, um, they were also dictated um, what to listen to. So um, they, uh, for an example, um, I've been uh, reading and researching um, a lot uh, from people who've written about that time. And there's a great book by a writer and a mentor of mine called Gwen Ansel, um, documenting accounts in a book called Soweto Blues. And she says, um, the white authorities found it unacceptable that black musicians should be acknowledged as capable of playing such sophisticated music. And so symbolic annihilation became part of the hegemonic staging and broadcasting of jazz. Uh, playing behind a screen at Cape Town City Hall while a white musician mimed his notes, Reedman Winston Mankunku Ngozi was billed as Winston Mann. In radio broadcasts, piano ton pianist Tony Shoulder heard himself rechristened Peter Evans and trumpeter Johnny McCoa became Johnny Keane. So what Radio Bantu did um, was that it started to censor, it started, jazz was basically banned because it was um, considered intellectual, it was considered developed, it was um, too, too um, developed for what natives should experience. And it was also considered very threatening because it, um, it carried messages or it empowered people. And uh, so what happened is musicians started to code, like, you know, as is um, evident in a lot of music in history, musicians started to code their tracks, their titles, um, and yet was there was still a heavy, heavy censorship um, on what was broadcast on Radio Bantu. So uh, many things weren't allowed. So basically this is already happening in the 60s. And then you kind of continue towards, towards the 60s. Um, as we get into the 70s, music venues were completely shut down. So now they're like, there's no way for musicians to gather. There's no place to perform. Um, there's serious past laws where you move and how you move. You have to kind of be had, uh, you have to kind of have had a white employee um, employer just telling you um, that you're allowed to go or move. And, um, you know, this all kind of any way that the apartheid government could control people, they did. So from education, which was Bantu education, now to sound, to movement, there was just, um, the whole system was made for people uh, not to be able to think because thinking was very dangerous. Um, and yet what becomes evident is that even under all of the social pressure, during the 
late 60s and 70s, there was a mass exodus of musicians who decided to go into exile. And they went, um, a lot of them didn't return, or a lot of them went and came back once apartheid was over. Uh, included in that is Abdullah Ibrahim, uh, who was then Dollar Brand. Um, the Blue Notes, uh, which was a free jazz group uh, from Cape Town, who moved through to London and stayed there for many years. Some of them were not able to come back. And Maria Makeba, Huma Sakela, Jonas Gwangwa. So you've got um, the kind of musicians who, who just couldn't take it and who were lucky enough to go, went. And then there were the others who um, either passed away in obscurity or poverty or they continued and they really like kept making music um, that um, throughout, you know, the, this worst real time um, because even record labels were really um, white, white artists would get paid for what they, what they um, made. Whereas black artists, unless it was an independent black run label, which there were very few of black artists were paid so little and they were completely exploited um, by these labels. So within all of this, um, one, there were almost no venues left, but um, there is writing and evidence about a venue in Orlando and Soweto called the Pelican that opened up in this time um, that still allowed all the great jazz musicians, whoever was able to pass through to gather, but these were obviously in the townships and these were um, under the pretenses of just being a drinking hall, uh, there was no um, information out there that this was like a music venue. And the authorities would obviously come regularly to try and close it down and, and trouble the, the owners. But um, it, it actually survived as a music venue for a while. Um, and also in, in 1968, so also in like the, the, the peak of this time, um, musician Winston Mankunku released... Um, Yakal and Como, which was an amazing, um, one of the most popular albums that came out at the time. So I guess, um, I mean, in 1975, Abdullah Ibrahim released uh, Manenberg uh, here in Cape Town with um, work of Basil Kutsir. So basically, I guess the point is that even though there was almost no way or reason or um, method for musicians to exist and even make music and make music together and share the music. They were so completely stifled. Some of the best music in South African history comes from that time period. Um, it's uh, the kind of music that we as DJs and collectors now, um, South African jazz is some of the most expensive music to buy globally. If you're looking for music not right now, the music from the 60s and 70s is really hard to find, but also it's it's the, some of the most prized music to have in your collection because it was so brilliant at the time. And there's tons of musicians I'm actually leaving out, but I think that trying to put my, my myself into the minds of those musicians making music with like really no hope because every form of resistance was also stifled. So, um, Yes, there were political um, uh, resistances building up, but the the curbing was so massive that it 
led to um, a, a feeling of hopelessness until you get sort of towards the 80s where state where there, where there was like a global sanctions and state of emergencies and then eventually you get to like 1994 when apartheid ended and then everything kind of opened up but there's still a result of all of this and this complete stifling is that there were some excellent musicians who kind of as I said, died in poverty. There is a complete lack of documentation of history. There's a there's a few books. A lot of um, Europeans came and did documentations and their own books. But in terms of books by South African writers, there's very few. And so there's this massive gap of knowledge of our own history and identity that, that basically needs to be filled um, still. So... Um, yeah, these artists pushing through in that time was really just um, something for me that I think I hope everybody can take inspiration for from. And also um, the fact that the musicians were part of the resistance in a really big way and it all came from, from jazz. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I am absolutely convinced that uh, many will take inspiration indeed. Uh, and... Um, and it's uh, it's fantastic to be able to add one uh, uh, how to say one layer of means of decolonization uh, as we've seen many during this series. Uh, we even did like a little um, on on uh, the slightly longer show on Radio Halara. We we played um, also some music from the P P A I G C like. Guinea-Bissau and Cap Verde uh, uh, Liberation Front music, which I think would uh, would fit well with what you were describing in the context of South Africa. Um, and I think you ha you have prepared uh, a little something f uh, to play for us. Is that, is that right? Yes. So I've put together um, some tracks that kind of were very uh, influential at the time. They were either tracks that were coded or maybe not coded, but they just spread uh, like nationally, nationally around the community, um, com black communities who and, and they were like empowerment songs, songs of struggle, but also made by musicians who were also really like fighting the system at the time. So I hope you enjoy the mix. Thank you so much, Atiya. Thanks for your generosity. And uh, I'm, I have no doubt that everybody will enjoy both the mix and, uh, and your words. So thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>
Cause he's our land in the jungle We see Azania We take our stand and never stop till we meet Azania Cause he's our land in the jungle We see Azania We take our stand and never stop till we meet Azania Cause he's our land in the jungle We see Azania We take our stand and never stop till we meet Azania This is our land in the jungle we see That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.